We can be found on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Like, share, subscribe, and leave us a comment down below. Now, on with the show. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. Fucking thing. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Right. Fuck it. Death Holler is a horror cast created by two true horror fans to bring to the table your favorite horror films. Topics include, but are not limited to, historical horror, gore, the occult, and terror. Listener discretion is advised. So, La Urena. Um, been a while since we've actually had a full-on chat, you know, actual conversation. The last episode we did was the kind of an overview and, and everything of the Sabrina, you know, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina show. Um, how Anything that you've gotten into since then as far as, like, any horror-related stuff or anything like that or... Yeah, I feel like this is kind of more news than anything, but I have really, really been interested in the Resident Evil Village game. <laughs> like, I've been obsessed with it. Besides the meme pictures that you're showing? Uh... <laughs> Besides the meme pictures, like, I've been watching uh, people do walkthroughs of what's been released so far. They call it the Maiden, um, Maiden something, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, just people doing walkthroughs and kind of seeing what's in there. And it's kind of cool because, I mean, I know Resident Evil kind of veered away from just zombies really early on, actually. They had some mutants, if nothing else. Yeah, that was... Another crazy... That was actually in the first game. I mean, they started out with, like, the mutated crocodile, alligator, whatever it was, like, in the very first game. Oh so God, they kind of, you know... so cool. Um, what? But the zombies were always like the, I mean, you'll always just refer, when you hear Resident Evil, you're immediately going to think Umbrella Corporation, you're going to think of Raccoon City, you're going to think of zombies, you know, so the fact that they got this really cool kind of gothic-like like village, um, just, it looks like, I don't know, Romanian of sorts from what I've been kind of researching, and I'm sorry, but I'm obsessed with that big titty vampire, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> I, th I think a lot of uh, internet guys will be uh, obsessed with it, too, once it, it makes its uh, a debut. And, like, I'm not saying that eight foot tall isn't tall. People are saying she's between eight and nine feet tall, and I'm only five foot and some change on a good day. So I get that as, like, double my height. But the way she has to lean through doorways and she could just pick you up with one hand makes me think that eight foot tall, like, she's not eight foot tall. Right. I, I just don't see how that would work. Well, I, I don't know anything about it. So what it, what kind of platform is it on? Like, what kind of game is it? Is it is it like the old ones? Is it on the new consoles? Like, what, what what's going on with it? Uh, you know what? I think it's going to be across platforms, but I don't know all of them, obviously. I don't expect to see it on Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold on. I'm going to pull it up real quick. See, as soon as I type in Resident Evil, my phone puts Village Vampire Lady. Uh, there you go. It's, she's already gaining Thanks, popularity. Thanks for stalking me. Okay, so gameplay. Oh, there's just a bunch of videos. System requirements. I know I heard PC. They're going to have PC okay. version of it. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I'm not really getting any uh, where it's going to be. Hold on. What does it say? PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X, 
and Series S and Microsoft Windows. Okay. So I, I feel some of the newer consoles. I feel a lot better about it because when I saw the name of it, I don't know, my mind instantly went to like mobile app game, and I'm like, yeah, uh, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I, that I, wouldn't have been fun. Yeah, no, they're usually There's not. There's no way they would have made Big Titty Vampire Lady look good on a mobile. <laughs> Well, yeah, probably not. I mean, some of the newer mobile games are really cranking the graphics up, but yeah, it'd be better on the consoles if you're going for that. Um, yeah, so now that we spent like freaking four minutes talking about that, <laughs> what about yourself? What have you been getting into? Well, I was really disappointed, like I said, about the Lovecraftian stuff and Sabrina, so I had to, you know, get that bad taste of my, out of my mouth by... Um, uh, me and my uh, wife played a card game called the Arkham Horror Living Card Game, and we played the the end of the first scenario. Like it, it leads you into it. Like you play a, post, a, a couple of investigators, or just like some ghouls that have been attacking Arkham, and you're trying to investigate. And basically, what what it amounts to is in the very last scenario, you're kind of wandering on the woods trying to find where their uh, the cult is joining together to bring the 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 devourer from below i think is the name of the creature and uh it it ultimately we ended up um we killed it sending it well we didn't kill we sent it back to wherever it came from but uh my character went stark raving mad in the process and uh my wife's character barely survived so i guess that was pretty good just for a typical a love- wednesday right yeah that's pretty good for a lovecraftian game i guess and um but i mean it it was a i don't know it fit the genre obviously better than what we saw in Sabrina and then I since then I've also watched a couple of you know classic movies that one of them I'd seen before it's called The Wraith it's definitely going to be on something and on Attack of the Bees at some point in the future wait, just wait, wait. not I have to spell it out is it The Wraith like W-R-A-I-T-H exactly it's a uh, okay it's an 80s movie. Charlie Sheen is the, the main actor in it, although he's not in the movie very much. It's got Randy Quaid as like this kooky sheriff that is kind of investigating. And it's it, it's it's an interesting movie. I, I saw it a few years back and I, I, I'd never and I was interested in it and decided to rewatch it. And it. It's pretty good B movie, so we'll, we'll probably bring it up again at some point. And then I decided to watch the Omega Man. Sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. I mean, not to get into the details about it, but basically, it's a Charlie Sheen's character is is kind of a. I mean, he he's kind of appeared out of nowhere. He's a new guy in town, and and he starts. Uh, and, and there's also another character that's going around like challenging these douchebags in in town to like these races and they all end up dying and and it it all kind of ties in together and there's a big reveal that you know they're you know about it all of that and so it's got this weird like it's it's like the typical 80s movie where it it's got more of a 50s vibe to it because it seems like any movie from the 80s like the characters it's almost like they're living in the 50s to wait you know the stereotypes and everything that goes along with it and it's set out in like some desert setting, and it and it feels so weird because like it, it's so remote and like there's nothing like that town is you know like some throwback to the fifties that you know never that you know that still exists somehow and in, in the in the time of the eighties I don't know it's got all this weird stuff going on but it's actually it's an interesting movie. You know what that reminds me of, kind of is uh, sometimes they come back. 
it it does. Ha- oh, was that no? That was straight up fifties, wasn't it? It was straight up fifties. This one, had, it, uh, the funny thing about this one is the main character who's doing the racing is, or is driving this thing called the Interceptor, and it's and or the Wraith or whatever they want to call it, and it's like this super futuristic car that looks like it could have came from like you know two thousand or later. It looks like te- you know uh, Elon Musk might have designed it or something, but it was like. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it it's it's got that. I mean, but it still has it. 50s vibe you can't get away from it in a lot of those 80s movies it's just like there's some movies now that are trying to go for the 80s vibe i feel like you know a lot of the 80s stuff had the 50s vibe it's just you know the generation at the time was i guess nostalgic and they threw a lot of that in there but so it's it's an interesting movie it also has clint howard in it uh a very small part by him and he looks really goofy so more so than usual um (laughs) there's another movie i watched called the omega man uh oh that's a good one yeah charlton heston i hadn't seen it to be perfectly honest with you it'd been like always seen like references to it it's one of those movies that i knew all about the movie without even having watched it it was that you know iconic and it lives up to the i mean everything that i dreamed it would be it's actually in my opinion one of the better visions of an apocalyptic setting that i've seen i mean like that movie really does especially from the time it came from yeah it's 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 very it's got a lot of desolation in it i mean there's it's just one of those movies that you know like it you know everywhere he goes there's dead bodies somewhere in the background everything's dead you know dead the world's dead that he's living in except for you know the ghouls that are uh giving him hell at night so it's 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 cool movie i mean i'd seen the other movies that or the movie it was kind of remaking which is the last man on earth i believe is the name of it with uh, vincent price i'd seen that before and of course they're all versions of I Am Legend, which was later redone into a Will Smith movie that I absolutely hate, but we'll, that'll be a topic for another, you know, another day, another episode, but. Wait, <laughs> you hated I Am Legend? I, I did not like the uh, Will Smith version, and it's probably because I read But the... you knew that was, like, a take from Omega Man, like, it's not exact at all. It's, it's not, but... and it's supposed to be based more on the book that, uh, uh I think Richard Matheson is the, the, the author, but the the book is it, I mean if you've read the book and then you watch the Will Smith movie I, I don't know I can forgive the other versions that are out there they they tried their own takes on what the book did but the the uh, there's something about the CGI monsters and and the Will Smith one that just got on my nerves so bad oh <laughs> uh, okay I I can see that and I don't know his his character I mean. Not that Charlton Heston's character was anything like this, because he wasn't. Like, the character in the book is supposed to be, like, this brilliant scientist who's, you know, trying his best to figure out some kind of cure, even though it's, like, you know, years after the fact. And, you know, um, but, like, I don't, I never bought Will Smith as being that character. Like, he's just, I I saw him as, you know, like the character he always plays, Big Willie style, you know. I just never, he, he never <laughs> sold it. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I can, I can see how that would get in the way. Yeah, and, and. And Charlton Heston didn't play that character either, but you know, it's he he wasn't trying to play a character. His character was more about, you know, I'm a ex military man. I'm just gonna go around killing shit, you know, and, and driving, you know, fancy cars, so it kinda fit. Yeah. I mean, especially if it's following the book, so Yeah. Um, well, we watched a movie that has the potential to bring on another kind of apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? And that is in the form of technically a Nephilim again. Oh, yes. Well, 
with regards to that, I think uh, I hear some visitors. I think it's time to uh, cue the music. <laughs> All right, we'll cue the music. Hello and welcome back to the Death Holler Podcast. It's a new year in the holler, and what better way to celebrate than to welcome a new life to this world? After all, what does each change of the calendar and every new birth represent but the possibility of renewal and hope for humanity? Today we meet little Andy Woodhouse. He might not be the bundle of joy his mama expected, and he's quite possibly the spawn of evil incarnate, but that doesn't mean he has to be all bad, does it? As always, I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. Death, and this is episode four, Rosemary's Baby. Joining me on the old spirit box is full-time ghost, part-time caretaker to wayward children, La Urena. How you doing, Urena? I love them children. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> so, um, are you excited for today's conversation, today's movie? Um, kind of, yeah. I mean, obviously, we got the movie behind our belt, and I definitely have a lot to say about it, and lots of cool, you know, I have a, a literally a chunk of, of history into, like, the curse, really, of the movie, but there's, like, so many curses surrounding this film, and I know you got bits of trivia, so I don't know how, this is going to be a real interesting take, because there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit to this movie. I mean, culturally, you know, the the actual real life drama that surrounded it, you know, that's kind of creepy in its own right, and just the uh, just just the film itself, you know, like I mean, you you know, it's it's it, there's just a ton to discuss with it. So um, definitely. Well, let's get into it then. Well, uh, before we get into it, there's no attack of the bees this episode for. For those who might be interested, I had a choice for this Attack of the Bees, a good companion piece to this film, but I feel like it's a good enough film on its own that it deserved its own little breakout episode, so be looking out for that. Uh, that would be a special presentation about the House of the Devil, uh, Ty West film. Um, but uh, there is a little bit of news that I wanted to cover before we get into Rosemary's Baby. Uh, the first bit of news which I found interesting, and I'm actually excited for this one, uh, is Edgar Wright, you know, uh, famous director for uh, Shaun of the Dead, um, is, retur yeah. is returning to the horror genre this year with a new film called Last Night in Soho. And it's uh, currently set to be released uh, in o October 22nd, 2021. Uh, star and it's starring uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, which we have discussed previously on uh, the episode about the Vivich. And interestingly enough, her uh, co-star is uh, Thomason McKenzie. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, I had to put this in here. When I saw the name and the fact that Anya Taylor-Joy was, I was like, okay, Anya's with Thomason this time. Okay. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Um. Thomason McKenzie's a, a younger actress who's uh, recently was in the movie Jojo Rabbit, and uh, she's supposed to be uh, in the Top Gun Maverick movie that's coming out. Um, okay. 
they describe it as a psychological horror film with time travel elements. So I'm just interested in this. I mean, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy, she's she's very interesting actress uh, to watch. You've got Edgar Wright. Uh, I, I love a lot of his movies. Uh, you know, they're more comedy-based usually, but when he, he can do horror when he needs to. I mean, Shaun of the Dead proved that. So um, I, don't, I don't know. What do you think about this, Urena? Okay, the, the first thought that came to my head was, okay, do you hear nowadays of movie sets having curses on them? <laughs> because when you start linking things up, that's when you start getting these weird coincidences and quite possibly, you know, the start of what could be cursed movie sets. But I don't know that I know of any, well, we talked a little bit about um, how... Krampus had a little bit of a curse, didn't it? it? It had a little bit of a one, not like a huge one, like maybe the one we're discussing today. And but yeah, it uh, it, it had it a, was noticeable it, though. It was noticeable. There, there, the people on the set definitely had some things going on that was more than just coincidence. So yeah, that's the first thing that popped in my head when you were talking about Anya, and then you said her co-star Thomason. I'm like, <laughs> okay, look it. I'm not saying that that's gonna cause a curse, okay? But I am saying. That's a funny coincidence, and coincidences often lead to curses for some reason. All they need, if it's a time travel element, is for her to go back in time, be on some kind of farm somewhere, and then there's an unruly goat. Oh, my God. And then, th- there you go. I mean, you, <laughs> you've got a film. Black Phillip. I would love a, a Black Phillip cameo. You know me. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, that, it, it, it seems like such a, you know, it, it seems like it could be a very cool movie. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it turns out as, you know, it's got a good pedigree to it. And it's coming out during spooky season. Now you said 2022? Uh, 2021, actually. It's supposed to come out oh, in October shit, of this year. Oh, spooky season this year. Yeah. Yay! So let, let's hope and pray those theaters are back open. Uh, if not, then maybe they can at least you know, we can stream it, you know, fairly, you know, quick to around spooky season and not have to wait too long on it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll be excited if, you know, I'll be even more excited if we can watch it in the theater, but honestly, I'll watch it any way I can, so. Yeah, that's that's how I'm going to be with it. Um, speaking of another big movie, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife is finally set to release in November of this year, 2021. Woo! Uh, November 11th, specifically. Um Nothing, nothing really more to cover about that. It's you know, uh, there's always the joke that it's a uh, Stranger Things Ghostbuster style, but you know that's when you get <laughs> <laughs> when, when you get what is it Wolfhard or whatever that kid's name is. When you get him in something, it, it's always kind of Stranger Things. Even the new it. Yeah. Movie. Oh my God! See, I knew right away what you meant when you said that. I was like, oh, okay, that kid's gonna be in the movie. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll take it. Yeah, it's him. And he's then, a good actor. He, he is. I mean, he. He actually uh, is is been known to like. I mean, they they respect him so much in Hollywood that like they actually listen to his demands. Like there's a like he got somebody hired on like one of his movie sets because he just demanded it and they they did it because they're like yeah he's you know the, this kid knows what he's doing so let's get this person. Wow, I just hope that it doesn't like get to his head the way it has for other actors. I mean, for instance, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> He was a good kid actor, and look how that sucker turned out. Oh yeah, let's let's hopefully we won't have Wolfheart, you know, making videos where he's like, you know, his eyes bugged out and he's screaming, "Just do it" or whatever, you know. Do it, just do, do it. it. That was so funny. <laughs> good entertainment. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> 
Um, speaking of good entertainment, A Quiet Place Part 2 is set to come out in September of this year. Okay, I haven't even watched Part 1. Oh my god, okay. And that was with what actor again? Uh, John Krasinski is the one that was in the first movie. Yes, um, okay. He might be in the second movie, but uh, that's all I'm going to say. You, you have to watch the first one to find out. I heard it was really, I heard it was really good. So why I haven't watched it is beyond me. Yeah, so you heard it was or it wasn't good. I'm sorry. Um, I, I heard it was a good movie. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a good. Actually, it's one of the better movies I think that's came out. The only problem is, is that it's got a lot. Of, the logic doesn't hold up if you think about it too much. So there's some frustrating things that way and. It's not one to really watch in a movie theater, even though I did, because a, a movie that's almost totally silent is uh, <laughs> made a lot worse whenever you hear people munching popcorn, uh, oh. you know, like wrestling with cellophane bags, trying to tear open their gummy worms. I mean, it's, you know, and slurping soda. It kind of gets annoying after a while. It's funny because I relate this to, I, I know Bird Box came out. And I don't know which one came out first, if it was A Quiet Place or Bird Box, but you have this movie where you, you're not allowed to see, and then you got this movie where you have to be quiet, and I'm like, what is going on in this world? I think Bird Box came out after, but I don't know which was, I mean, I, Bird Box could have been based on something, because I'm really not familiar with it, and, and it could have predated A Quiet Place, so I really don't know which one, but I know that Quiet Place beat it to the punch as far as like actually being a film. Yes. So uh, I really liked Bird Box, speaking of that. So I mean, that's <laughs> me. And I know we could save that for another discussion. Uh, I don't really think, I don't know that it's discussion worthy unless we were like mixing that with fucking A Quiet Place. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about movies where you can't do anything. You just have to sit there. <laughs> I, that, that might make a good double feature. That's actually not a bad idea. Let's Movies where you have to uh, stop one of your senses in, in order to be able to defeat the bad things in the movie or to get around them i I can i that would be hella fun actually (laughs) um the last bit of news i have on here is uh is that eli ross uh, history of horror was picked up for a third season by mc and i think that's pretty good news because i've I've watched uh quite a bit of the on shutter the first couple of seasons and it's actually a very well done little documentary series for horror films Wait, what movie was this again? Oh, it's it's a it's actually a TV series called uh, History of Horror, where uh, Eli Roth. Oh fuck! Yeah, Eli Roth. He goes around the like. Uh, he 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 basically he has like, kind of you know in in a in a vein like we're doing, but like more focused episode per episode. He does like, you know, one one episode might be you know movies about hauntings, and he goes through like some of the big movies and kind of gets some of the directors and actors from those movies and kind of goes over things with them and. He's got like um, some of his friends, like Rob Zombie, and um, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. The the guy who does the the visual effects for The Walking Dead, he he gets him in there, and like you know, they kind of just sit around and talk about their favorite horror films within that genre, and you know why they liked them, and you know that sort of thing. It's 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 a pretty good show. Look at I love Eli Roth. He has some of the most amazing horror. I don't know if you've ever heard in from his childhood to how he got into movies. And the people that have inspired him, he's got a pretty amazing story. And still, I can't forget him as the Bear Jew. (laughs) (laughs) That is probably one of his biggest scenes. Um, 
I think when I think of Eli Roth, I, there's all, there's always one movie that I go back to, and it's just because he the the concept of the movie and and how out there it was. Just I mean, it just stuck with me the imagery in it, and that's you know Cabin Fever. Like if you see those scenes in that movie where just like skin is sloughing off these people, and oh my god, it's it, it's it's definitely you know one of those body horror movies that's like the top of my list. Like you know ones that stick with me. Yeah, isn't it wasn't he in that movie too? Didn't he put himself in that movie? He probably did. I mean, I'll be honest with you, like I don't really I, I know when it when he gets in the, when he puts himself in the movies like, oh, there he is, you know, like and then I forget about it. But yeah, he pro- he probably was in that movie. He was probably Oh yeah, he did. He played a character in there. Um he actually Okay, so the reason why I brought this up, I for some reason I thought it was Cabin in the Woods. Forgive me. Okay. <laughs> I almost <laughs> I almost said that, so I will forgive you because I had to sit there and check myself before I said it so yeah but um (laughs) he put himself in this movie because he the actor just for whatever reason he wasn't feeling right about what the actor how it was portraying and he he himself couldn't explain how he wanted this actor he couldn't direct him for some reason and so he pulled him out of the film which is so rare to do literally the day of (laughs) and he went and he he filmed the part, and then as soon as he was done, he left to go film something for, uh, oh, God, why can't I? Quentin Tarantino. Uh, did he film, for, you know, Inglorious Bastards? Was that what he filmed right after that, or was it another film for? It must be. I don't know how many films of Quentin Tarantino's he's been in, but he was like, it was like his dream. Quentin Tarantino is one of his biggest, you know, he he's a big fanboy of him. So I, I'm not 100 on that. I'm sure eventually we'll get into that. Um, I need to, I'm changing the subject back to what you were bringing up. I need to subscribe to Shudder because shame <laughs> on me for not first off. Second, I would love, I am so obsessed with Eli Roth and his history. And like I said, how he became such a horror fan and creating horror films. So that show that you're talking about, oh my God, history of horror. It's it's I don't know I just I really like it and and he even if you're not a fan of like some of his movies because I know he veered off for a while and doing torture porn you know with Hostel and all that he favorite he has a, a definite love for the genre because when he's sitting there discussing these movies with people you can just see it in his eyes he's not faking at all whenever he's like you know just when he you know talks about his love for all these different horror movies. I mean, it's 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 100% legitimate and I and I respect him for that. Yeah, and he's very well spoken too. Uh when he the when I don't know, just when he's speaking, he knows it's just, you know he knows what he's talking about. Oh yeah, he's he's definitely studied up on the genre. He knows I mean, you know, obviously from the film side of it, he knows uh, the ins and outs of that, so he can speak to that, you know, really well. It's 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 a good series, and I and I really like whenever he's sitting down and he's going. I mean, especially those scenes where he's just around a table from, you know, Rob Zombie and them, and just kind of you know going over it's like some old buddies talking about you know, and the, and they're all in the genre themselves and talking about other things they love within the genre. It's just great. It's like a round table of just horror film creators. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but then it's fucking he, awesome. But then it breaks off in the certain scenes, and and he goes like he'll sit down with you know people specifically from the movies and kind of you know like get their take of how it was to film it, you know like what they liked about it and that sort of thing. Like you know he'll sit down with Linda Blair or somebody, you know, and then you know kind of and they'll discuss the movie, and it's 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 really good. I really love that because, in my opinion, it really brings the scene to life. 
you get to know behind it what the actor was feeling, how they brought that character into it, how they prepared themselves for it. And it, I don't know, it just makes the movie just like meatier for me, you know? It, it does. And I, and another thing I like about it is a lot of cases on these, they'll discuss their own personal like feelings toward horror, like, you know, like things that, you know, they are scared of personally. And it, it it's interesting. Like whenever you hear somebody who played like this evil character in a movie that, you know, that scares other people talk about how they're afraid of, you know, these the, something you never think that they'd be afraid of. It's like, oh, you know, like Freddy's afraid of that or whatever. You know, it's it's one of those things. It's it's cool. Mm-hmm. All right. What else do you got? Well, as far as news goes, that's it. So if you're ready, I'm ready. I think it's time that we uh, go ahead and discuss the movie for today. Yes, I'm excited to discuss this. <laughs> so the movie that we're discussing today is Rosemary's Baby. Uh came out in 1968. Uh, director and screenplay writer was Roman Polanski. We'll get into that here in a little bit. <laughs> producers uh, were William Castle big B movie director anybody who knows anything about William Castle he's some of his famous movies are The Tingler and uh, House on Haunted Hill and uh, you know, he, he was a schlock movie director. He was one of those guys that was known for like, he would put like little things in your seat during Tingler to like make the seat vibrate. So it, it looks like you were getting shocked, just like the people in the movie. He was that kind of guy. That's how he got his scares. So that's badass. <laughs> and, uh, he was almost the writer of this and that would be a little bit of trivia coming up. And, uh, the other person that, that helped produce this was Robert Evans. And he was the Paramount studio exec that kind of brought everything together in this movie and and i definitely have to give the guy credit as far as producer he he made when we get into some discussion behind the scenes he definitely made the right calls as far as like who to get for which part and 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 that sort of thing um i think and and of course this movie was based upon a novel by ira levin who literally it was fast-tracked into a movie like he had just it made the book like it would just sent it out to Hollywood like you know within like a you know a few months of it being produced you know I don't even know if it's fully you know like actually published at that point and it was it was a newborn baby book <laughs> it, it was and you know and the devil was with it or, or some other power because it got scooped up quicker than anything I've ever seen I mean it was it, they were making the movie of it within a year so that that's pretty good for him um, I think before we go into the actual movie itself, though, I, I, there's some lore in this movie that I think would be interesting to kind of uh, go over. And so I'm going to leave that. I'm going to throw it back over to you, Urena, and kind of discuss some uh, lore that might be involved with this. Well, alrighty then. I, I guess you're ready for this. So uh, here we go. Buckle up, bitches, because it gets pretty interesting. So I'm going to start with the building, which in the film was called The Bramford. Mm-hmm. And I found out, here's a little bit of trivia. I literally literally found this out today. There was some speculation on where the name, where they came up with the name of this building. And I think this is uh, Ira, Ira Levin, you said, the uh, the person who wrote the book? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. He was kind of upset. I don't know what the other speculation of what people thought this name came from, but he actually got it took the name from like kind of like a take on Bram Stoker. Okay. So that's, you got the uh, Bramford, Bram Stoker. Okay. You know, so he kind of had that in there. And there's no like doubt when you see the outside of this building, when they have like the aerial view of this, it's a gothic, dark looking building. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, it's very dark looking. I mean, you you know, it's one of those, uh, you look at the building and it, it's it's a throwback to like, you know, gothic architecture and it's, it's you know, Victorian, you know, type things. I mean, it's it, there's definitely a reason why he chose that as the setting. Yeah, and I he couldn't have picked a better, you know, building. But there's something about this building. A lot of people say that it has a dark gothic vibe that goes beyond just basically how it looks. So how it looks is basically how it feels. So the building they used was the famed Dakota, which I'm just going to skip right to, or not skip, but at least people know. And if they don't know, that is where, unfortunately, John Lennon lost his life. He was assassinated outside of the Dakota. So that's part of the history. We'll get into that. (laughs) But I noticed a lot of things. Every now and then I just came across the number seven, Because we know that in the movie, they were on the seventh floor. Okay. I don't know if you recall that, but a lot of what was happening was on the seventh floor. This building was, uh, I think the uh, address is number one, 72nd Street, I believe. I don't know if I got the number one part right, but I know it's on 72nd Street in New York. So there was that. So before, I guess we'll start with, you know, John Lennon, who was friends actually with Mia Farrow. We know he lived at the Dakota, um, and how he came about living there was pretty interesting because it almost didn't happen. So he was visiting a friend literally at a next-door building, like apartment buildings, and he really liked the area. He liked the vibe and everything. I mean, it's a fucking luxurious place of New York, you know? (laughs) And he was visiting this friend, him and Yoko Ono. He liked it so much. He wanted to live there, but there wasn't, basically, there wasn't anything available. Okay, no shocker. So Yoko Ono and him had their assistant check next door at the Dakota. And it just so happened, now there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Ryan. He was famous in the 70s, and I'm not sure for what. I didn't look into it because I didn't want to veer off of the history too much. Um, But unfortunately, he had just lost his wife, and they had lived there. Um, She didn't die in the building, as far as I know, but he didn't want to live there anymore. So... As they're asking, literally, he puts in his notice that he's leaving and Yoko Ono and John Lennon put in their notice that, hey, they want to move if there's anything available. So they literally got in just by fucking chance. So that was pretty interesting. It's like it was meant to happen. That's pretty. So, that's actually pretty similar to what happens in the actual book and film. So that's, that's interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in 1970, 1972, 1973, I believe, they moved into this building on the seventh floor. <laughs> there you go. Which is pretty interesting, okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, in this building, so in his, you know, it's like a co-op apartment. So basically what that means is that every person who lives there owns a portion of the building. So okay. I- I've heard co-op. I'm like, what the fuck is that? That's what we're dealing with. Okay. Um, he practiced his songs in the basement. And in the basement, he wrote on the walls, Helter Skelter. Oh, God. We'll get into that. Okay. Okay. So he lived there pretty much from 1973 to 1980. I will skip forward to where, hmm, let me see. Where do I want to go with this history? This history is all over the place, and so was I. Um, I know while he was, I believe, before he lived there, actually, in 1968, him and, well, not him, I shouldn't say him and Mia Farrow, but the Beatles and Mia Farrow were at some retreat in India. It's really famous. I mean, <laughs> it, 
you hear about it all the time. You can tell their music was inspired by a lot of, I don't know, Indian background, if you will. Oh, yeah, yeah. They... And that while they were there, that's where he wrote the song Helter Skelter. So not him, excuse me, Paul McCartney and him. They both wrote the song Helter Skelter. Okay, so that was in 1968. Um, Helter Skelter, let me see. Uh, I already read about the retreat. That was in 1968. Um, then kind of skipping forward just a little bit more, and I will tie these timelines together just so it kind of makes a little bit more sense. It does and it doesn't. Uh, you'll see what I mean when I read the timeline out in order. Um, skipping to Roman Polanski, who was obviously the director of Rosemary's Baby, um, it seemed like the curse was more affecting people around him and maybe not him so much. I mean, he's a cursed man for many reasons, and I didn't know if you were going to get into that or not because I am not specifically going to. It's Not for any particular reason. I just want to stick to the to the curse, the web of curse I have. The the only thing that needs to be brought up about Roman Polanski is, ob- is the most obvious one and the fact that he's no longer allowed in the United States, and that's because – Later on in his career, I think it was around the late 70s, mid to late 70s, he was, uh, some accusations started rising, much like Harvey Weinstein, you know, late, you know, decades later, where he had been uh, molesting or, you know, raping uh, uh, women or using his power over the women, you know, his position to uh, have, you know, sex with them. And uh, it just so happened that one of uh, one of the many uh, was, was underage at the time, and I think that was in France when that happened, and that that got him some uh, you know uh, into trouble that way. So he you know he and then he had he escaped the United States, and 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 if he ever comes back, he can be arrested for it, to my knowledge. Oh, definitely, yes. Well, actually, the underage uh, girl. That was at a photo shoot in America that happened at uh, Jack Nicholson's house, mansion. Okay, well, and that... I don't know if you knew that. And I was kind of wondering, I had never heard of Jack Nicholson. It doesn't seem like he got in any kind of trouble. I'm sure he had some answering to do, and if he didn't, I just found that to be very interesting. That That is interesting. That would have been... That, that goes into something we'll get into a little bit. I mean, but he, he did a movie with Roman Polanski called Chinatown, which is very famous and for good reason. It's a great mm-hmm. film. And that might have been around the time that that happened. Because if they were, you know, buddy, buddy, you know, hang, you know, filming the movie together, I, I could see that, you know, you know, them palling around outside of the movie. And that, that could have been the time frame that this all happened. Yeah. Now, I mean, we know without a doubt, Roman Polanski, he went, he had some rough shit that happened. It doesn't excuse any of the things that he did. It's just, it's so disturbing that he's such a creative person. He's so good at his job. It's unfortunate the shit that happened to him. And it's also very unfortunate the shit that he's done. That's got him to where he's at. Yeah, and I, I don't know. He had a meteoric rise. I mean, once he was discovered by our eleven for this film, at least in the United States, for good reason. I mean, the man's talented, and I and I don't know if that rise and maybe what happened, you know, uh, you know that we'll get into. Uh, maybe you know, uh, maybe the combination it, it it all affected his mind a little bit. You know, he get power hungry because he was so sought after so you know he was this big honored director i mean he mia farrell to this day still talks about how great of a director he was as far as like working with him so i mean it's it's not like yeah i mean you know so there's nothing wrong with bringing that out despite what you know about the person if that wasn't something that was at the time you experienced yeah you could say you know yeah what a dumb fuck for doing what he did (laughs) however when we were together look at this is how i was treated he really did a good job of helping me do my job. And you can't 
deny that, you know? Yeah, and, I, and the, the only reason I bring it up is I just think that maybe, I mean, he was he was so talented, but he, he also had such a, you know, he, he was such a, you know, a big rising star that maybe some of that went to his head because, I mean, he was just directing films in, like, Poland prior to this film, uh, Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, that's a – for somebody to come from just making films, in, you know, in, in Poland to Hollywood and being, like, the Hollywood director, you know, the, the rising star, some of that might have played into it. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, he – I mean, he – Sharon Tate – you know, uh, that's what we'll get into. But I mean, he, you know, there, there was, you know, he obviously had enough clout and there was enough about him that he was able to, you know, you know, attract somebody as beautiful as she was. So, I mean, it was one of those things where I, I don't know, I can see that all going to somebody's head, especially if he was, I don't know how the man was prior to all this, but he could have been just like this nerdy film guy that, you know, just suddenly was, everybody wanted to be around him. And, you know, that kind of, you know, that might have played into him thinking that he was a gift amongst men or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I do know that, yes, he was married to the very beautiful and young Sharon Tate. I mean, I hear that they had a, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this word right, tumultuous, <laughs> a very <laughs> shaky relationship well, in general. Well, um, when they first started dating, right before they started dating, uh, he's on record as saying that he didn't think that there was anything between them prior to prior to them actually going out because he thought she was ditzy and hard to work with because they were on a <laughs> they were on a movie together which is where they met called Fearless Vampire Killers and uh, he um, he he said that she it took him a a long time in that movie to get her to where she needed to be at as far as like the, you know her acting so. He he wasn't, you know, like he wasn't thrilled by her upon first sight. So, I mean, you know, they had some contention right from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, she was young. That, that's all I can really attribute that to is that she was, she was 26 when she died. <laughs> yeah. Or I should say 26 when she was taken from this world. So, yeah. and they had known each other for, I think they had known each other a few years prior. So, she had some growing up she had to do. So, I can see that, you know, being something I, I, I read who knows? Obviously, no one's here. Well, he's in a different. I don't think he's going to be defending himself from France. <laughs> but you know that no. Even when they were married, he was constantly cheating on her, allegedly, and she kind of just put up with it because she kind of liked her lifestyle, I, I, allegedly. So I don't know. I, I, you know. I don't know. There's a lot of hearsay. It's hard to say. You hear so many different stories, no matter what you read. And, and there's a lot of weird things as far as like her. I mean, she was she was actually engaged to another guy called Jay Sebring whenever she met uh, Polanski and just ended it and said, "I'm marrying Polanski," and that was it. I mean, you know, it, it, I you know, they're Hollywood relationships. They're 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 weird. So that's that's all you can mm, say about definitely. that. So. I don't think I have to go into the details of the Manson murders, but all you need to know basically is that, yes, Roman Polanski was married to her um, just a little over a year after Rosemary's Baby was released. So Rosemary's Baby was released June of 1968. So August of 1969, um, we know that the Manson family came in, murdered everybody who was in her house. No one got out alive. Um, Obviously, Sharon Tate, who was pregnant, eight months pregnant at the time with Polanski's baby, um, two days later, the Manson family strikes again. They killed um, a couple Leno and Rosemary Bla- Bianca. Wow. I felt that interesting wow. that the lady's name was Rosemary. Okay. Yes. And after he murdered them, they misspelled the word helter-skelter in their blood on the wall. So 
let me see if I could piece this timeline together because I messed up so many times putting this together because I'm like, oh my God, this is here. No, this is here. No, this was first. No, this was first. But what we had first in 1968 was we had the retreat where the Beatles and Mia Farrow, which Mia Farrow and John Lennon were really good friends. Okay. That's where they were at. That's where the Beatles wrote the White Album, which included the song Helter Skelter. It goes on. It gets better. January of 1968, excuse me, that's what it was, January of 1968. June of 1968 is where Rosemary's Baby was released, okay? Okay. 1973, so this is after Rosemary's Baby, obviously. John Lennon moves into the Dakota, and that's where we know he eventually writes the Helter Skelter on the basement wall. Excuse me, before that, this is where I messed up the timeline. August of 1969 was the Manson murders, and then in 1973... He comes the Helter Skelter on the basement wall, even though the Helter Skelter song was written prior to the Manson murders. Okay. So, like I told you, this timeline gets all over the place. Yeah, that's weird. Um, yes. And then December of 1980, we know that John Lennon was killed and <laughs> at, at the Dakota, which is why I put that in there, because it's just... At how everything ties together to the movie. We're talking about the actors, the... The the apartment building, um, the murders, it's just insane. Now, this was just, a, there's another little bit of trivia I found while researching this random shit related mostly to the building, but which also relates to the film. So a Helter Skelter, and I don't know if you're aware of this because I sure as fuck wasn't. It's like a fairground attraction. It's basically like a ride. And Paul McCartney kind of claims that he was using the symbol of a Helter Skelter as a ride, like, from top to bottom, or in this case, rise and fall. Okay. And in the song, it was to basically indicate the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It's just got the name Roman in it. Okay, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that, that's, that's interesting. That, that, that. So. Wow. Okay. So I pieced all this random shit together, <laughs> and I apologize that I kind of just, you know, verbally just blurted the shit all over the place but I, my mind was blown when I was listening and reading about this stuff I'm like are you fucking serious that's way too many coincidences you know and well and there's one more thing that ties into all that and I, and it was something that I accidentally heard on a you know a shutter program you know bringing them back up uh, about cursed films and I was actually watching the one about the omen of all things and they had to bring up Rosemary's Baby and I was I was hoping to go into this totally blank on the curse part of this but the interesting thing is that whenever Lennon was killed by uh, Mark David Chapman, he the Mark David Chapman had a split second where he was thinking about not going through with it. And apparently, he was standing in front of the Bramford, or the Dakota, I guess, the real-life version, and Mia Farrow walks right beside of him at the same time that he's having this like crisis of, you know, like, should I do it, should I not? And... Seeing her prompting in his mind all these links, it's like Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, Manson, you know, and then he thinks Helter Skelter, and it was like, that's my sign from God. I've got to go through with this. Jesus Christ. So literally, Mia Farrow walking beside the Dakota at the same time that Mark David Chapman was thinking about not going through with killing Lennon was what prompted him to kill Lennon. 
That's fucking insane. I didn't I didn't catch that. Yeah. And, so this is like news to me. <laughs> and it's just like it puts chills up your spine. It's like that, oh, why how, why would all this stuff come together and like the the place that you know like it it's just mind boggling. It could all be a coincidence, but that's some like crazy fucking coincidences. And it's a coincidence. It's like built up over like what six or seven years or something. I mean, it's like or, or at least five. I mean, it's like not. It's not like a media. It's not like all this stuff happened like bam, bam, bam. It's like you know one little piece here, one little piece there, and it just all like you know falls together at the last minute and then just leads to all this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I don't find it to be a coincidence. I have a hard time believing that. You know, after the Manson murders, which were in 1969, I have a hard time believing in 1973, John Lennon was thinking about that when he wrote Helter Skelter on his walls, you know? It's just weird. That, but it's just so weird. And it's weird that he would do that after the fact. I mean, you would think that, I mean, I don't know, he might have been, you know, bombed out of his mind on drugs or something. But, you know, there, there had to have been a part of him that's like, you know, is this some bad taste? You know, somebody that, you know... I know tangentially, I mean, I don't know if he knew Roman Polanski, but a lot of people knew Sharon Tate, at least. You know, should I be, you know, writing this on the wall, given the history of it? I don't know. It's That's weird. Maybe he felt like this, I created this, you can't take this away from me. Yeah, maybe it was him trying to take it back. But the, 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 the spooky thing about it is, is in the novel, which we'll get into, the basement is where Hutch... When he's given the history of the Bramford, which is the stand-in for the Dakota, the basement is the part where, like, somebody had left, like, a dead baby wrapped up in a newspaper. And it's the one thing... Oh, yeah. And it's the one thing that prompts Rosemary, which we'll get into, to kind of... It starts her doom in the movie. It's the... It, she. That's where, because of because of her fear of the basement, it, it all kind of leads her down her path, and it's... And it's just spooky that he would choose the basement, the same spot, you know, to to do that. Yeah, very very interesting. So, is there any more? Uh, uh, I guess curse that you've heard about. I mean, that's a pretty big one. But is there anything else related to that, or is there anything related? To I mean, there's plenty more curses. We talked a little bit more about Roman Polanski's, you know, bad luck. I do know on set. <laughs> this is trivia. On set, did you know that Mia Farrow was served? Uh, divorce papers by Frank Sinatra. Yes, yes. Uh, that that was funny. And and actually, it was during a part in the film, I think, where she's filming the pregnancy scenes. So like her just looking like run down and like it was just it was furthered by the fact that she was going through a divorce at the same time that she was filming all that. Yeah. So that I found interesting. Hold on, I'm trying to see. Okay, and then one other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is kind of it for me, but. Not so much a curse, but Mia Farrow had a little bit of bad luck, and we know how she was with uh, Woody Allen for a long time. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, 1980 to 1992. Isn't this, <laughs> the, the, this not spouse, I, I keep wanting to say it's her husband. I didn't realize they weren't married, but this is the one that ended up marrying their adopted child. Huh. Did you ever hear about that? Did you not know about this? Oh, uh, well, I knew about him doing that, but I didn't know, was that the adopted child with Mia Farrow? Yes. Oh, my God. No, I didn't know that. Yes. So he basically married, I mean, their their daughter, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not, not, it's just, I don't know. It's just weird. And I'm like, this woman had some fucking luck in her life is all I got to say. <laughs> she, 
She definitely. I know curses can affect people in different ways, but man. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Well, and, anyways, that's all I really have. Okay. The the one thing I want to say, you know, to cap all that, is that specifically one of the actors in the movie, the one who plays Roman of all things, the, you know, uh, Sidney Blackmer, uh, I, I'm going to, you know, go over the rest of some of the major players besides him, but he specifically said at the end of filming, whenever they got to the scene where they're saying, Hail Satan, Hail Rosemary, you know, uh, you know, all that. He looked at Roman Polanski, and uh, I believe it was Ira Levin, and he said, I don't like that we're saying this, and I believe this is cursed us. Oh, my God. And I'll, and I'll just, you know, that that's the cap to that. So he, he did say it. You know, they they all said that he said that because he was, and he was the, you know, he plays the bad guy in the movie, like the bad guy. And, like, he was the one saying, he's like, I don't think we should be doing this, guys. That's, you know, so there you go. They all did it in a very creepy way, too. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. Like, the way some of the people were smiling, and I was like, ugh. Ugh. Well, let, let's just get in the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, the principal players in the movie we've already discussed. Mia Farrow plays Rosemary Woodhouse, main main star of the movie. Uh, she was nominated for an Academy Award for this for Best Actress. Uh, actress. She did not. She did not win a, win the award that year, but she was nominated. Um, prior to this, she was uh, known for being an actress on a TV show called Peyton Place. Uh, they. She hadn't really done any movies. Uh, she wasn't the actress that when Polanski was hired on that he actually wanted for the movie, uh, surprisingly. Uh, Tuesday Weld was the actress he wanted because he wanted more of a Midwestern, I think he said milk-fed vibe is the way he described it. Um, you know, he thought that... Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> Went polo opposite, okay. Yeah, and, and, it, and, and to his credit, that fits the book better because she is from, I believe, Omaha. She is, you know, uh, you know, she's going to be a Midwestern girl. Like, you know, if you go by... And and funny thing is, Ira Levin actually describes her through a scene with a, another character later on in the book and say, and the character says, remarks that she looks like a movie actress herself, but that Rosemary looks like a uh, Laurie Piper, uh, which is uh, actually the actress who played uh, Carrie's mom on the movie Carrie. So that, that if you can imagine what Carrie's mother looked like in that movie, that's what Rosemary is said to have looked like. A younger version, obviously, but, you know, Rosemary would have been that look as opposed to Mia Farrow, which uh, is a, definitely a different look. Dang. Okay, I want to say something real quick about Mia Farrow. Did she seem to have an accent to you in this film? I don't know if I would say she has an accent. She's It's almost like a lack of one. It's kind of a strange... Uh, well, no, I can definitely see lack of an accent, especially if she's from Omaha. But I almost... Okay, maybe I'm crazy, but I, it, to me it seemed like she almost had like... Some sort of English accent of some sort, a broken one, not a great one. Yeah, she she might have it. It was it was it was kind of it was kind of weird. Like she, it wasn't anything you could place, and I don't know. It, it could have been intentional uh, because honestly, uh, uh, Ira Levin. That's the reason he wanted her for the part, and he actually argued with Polanski and and won, is because he thought that the, she was just so odd 
like her appearance, like not odd in a bad way. It's just there was something different about her, and that's unique. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and that's what he wanted for the party. He wanted somebody who was. I mean, she has this. He called it left of center, not the, not in a political sense, but just the you know she wasn't like you look at her and it's like oh well that's you know just some random person I see on the street. You don't look at me a pharaoh at least not at that time period and think that's I mean probably not even now because she still she still looks like she's out there, but you know in like an older hippie way. But like you know it's yeah. <laughs> But it's like, you know, I can't disagree with him. Like, you look at her, and especially, and and I don't know if it was, like, the way she normally talked, but you're right. There's something about what, the way even she speaks in the movie. It's not like, you're right. It, yeah, because I was like, is she, I thought maybe for a second she might have, uh, like, actual English accent. But she was born in Los Angeles, Mia Farrow herself. And then when she was like, oh, he's from here, and I'm from o- Omaha, I'm like, you don't sound like you're from <laughs> Omaha. <laughs> Not to be rude, but okay. The only person I know of or that I've ever heard any speak for, that I know is from Omaha Omaha is like Warren Buffett, and he definitely doesn't have Mia Farrow's accent in that movie. So No, he certainly doesn't. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. She wasn't the first choice. They wanted, you know, Plansky wanted somebody more like in the book, and but she works. Um, the second major actor we have in this film is John Cassavetes, who plays Guy Woodhouse. And I've got to admit uh, really quick that I was reading the list of actors and actresses on the, the actual, like this little thing that came with the, the Criterion Blu-ray. And I had a dumb moment where I was like reading through the names and I was like, okay, you know, Mia Farrow, Rosemary Woodhouse. And then I read you know, John Cassavetes, and then I read, you know, Guy Woodhouse, but the two didn't connect because I'm thinking Cassavetes, Castavet, Cassavetes, Castavet. Oh, yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. I thought about that, too. And, and I was like, I was like, wait a minute, it, you know, okay, that's one of the people that, you know, was the, the one of the actors that's playing like the, you know, the couple next door, but who's actually playing Guy, and then it dawned on me. I was like, they got a guy with a last name very similar <laughs> to, to the actual characters in the film, so I thought that was kind of weird. Um, mm-hmm. But... Anyways, John Cassavetes was a director himself. Um, he done. He was in the movie Dirty Dozen as an actor, and that was his one of his big roles. And then he was for horror fans. He was also in a movie later called Incubus, which was came out in 1982. Which I don't know if that was him trying to play off his fame in Rosemary's Baby, but it's kind of funny that he's in a film about a hopped up sexual demon. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he, a little interesting tidbit about him, he was also not the actor that was wanted for the part. Uh, they actually wanted Robert Redford to be in the role, and that was even Ira Le- or not Ira Levin, but uh, Robert Evans, I keep saying the wrong name, Robert Evans, the studio exec, was actually the one who wanted uh, Robert Redford in the film because they they all felt like Robert Redford fit the part better and if you read the book I actually I got to admit if you go look back and look at pictures of a young Robert Redford he actually does look like what my mind filled in whenever I was reading the book of what Guy Woodhouse would have looked like you know kind of this all-american you know like strapping you know uh you know Hollywood type I didn't get that vibe from John Cassavetes he does not look like what you would think is like somebody who's an aspiring Hollywood you know no he gave me a Bronx kind of I don't know, like a tough guy vibe. He almost, this is weird, he almost gave me the same vibe as the the guy who played, um, and I don't know why I'm blanking on the name, the, the, the father in The Exorcist, the one who was the, the, you know, kills himself at the end of the film to, you know, to, to save, 
the main character. Uh, oh yeah. He, 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 yes. he oh, God. he's got a similar look to him, you know, as, as that guy, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, I'm telling you, they have that like, you know, tough New Yorker vibe, you know, Rocky Balboa. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those. It's, and it, I don't know. It, whenever I heard Robert Redford, I was like, yeah, that's, that's who I would have cast if I was just like, you know, not and when you go back and look at him, he looks like what Ira Levin actually described in the novel. But anyways, um, he, they ended up, a little bit of another trivia, they ended up clashing along, during the film, him and Polanski, because they have two totally different styles, both being directors and actors in their own rights. They had two totally different mm-hmm. ways of directing, and they clashed over it because Cassavetes was more about improv. He would have been probably, you know, happier with, you know, like some of the, you know, uh, 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 you know, like movies like, you know, This is 40 or something like that, where they just all the time improv and, you know, kind of get their jokes that sort of way. Uh, John Apatow, yeah. that type of film. He was was like that kind of an actor or a director. He wanted you to just come up on the fly with what you thought your character would say. And uh, Polanski's a total opposite. It's like he's he knows what he wants. He knows how it's supposed to look. He wants you standing in the right spot. He wants you, you know, doing just what he wants. And if you don't do it, he's going to make you redo it until you do what he thinks that it should look like. So they really got on each other's nerves uh, to the point where they, they didn't even talk toward the end of the film. Like they, it was just like, when they came on the scene, they did what they had to do and they, that was it. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess the, that's the kind of actress I would be if I were ever to be an actress. Um, Hollywood, I'm available. Call me. <laughs> but <laughs> is that if a director is telling me what to do, I'm on their film. I'm going to do what they're telling me to do. And I'm going to try to do it the way they want me to do it to try to make things go as smoothly as possible. And I, guess maybe if you're a more famed actor or actress, maybe you can kind of give suggestions. You know, I know we know that actors and actresses do that in films, not films, excuse me, in te- television shows. If they've been there for a long time, for instance, Supernatural, where you had Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles that were eventually producing and sometimes directing and kind of giving their input and then negotiating. That's fine. But I mean, how established was he at this point in his career? Um, Cassavetes was pretty established and that, that might've been part of the reason why he was such a pain in Polanski's ass is because Polanski, this was his first film. I mean, you know, he, Oh, okay. That makes sense. And, you know, Cassavetes had done, I mean, not that Cassavetes was a big time director, but I mean, he'd done enough to where, you know, it was like, and, and the funny thing was, is that he was a hire because of Polanski. Polanski knew the guy, he was friends with him. You know, before oh, yeah. this film, they were good friends prior. yeah, and so it was one of those things where like, let me get my buddy in this movie since we can't get Redford because you know Redford at the time, going back to him, he the he was he was set to do the movie I think, but or they were going to ask him, but then he had like this bl- big blow up of Paramount and and he just walked off and they never heard from him again as far as like you know working with that studio, so that's the reason they had to go with somebody else last minute. So it's kind of interesting that you know, and and I don't know if. I mean, they knew each other, and but I just, I guess it was one of those things where it's like, you know, they they were fine as friends, but they just couldn't, they couldn't actually work together. Um, well, I would say despite the differences, uh, it, in my opinion, it worked well, well in the film because Guy plays an asshole, and I think that vibe that I told you he gives me, that Bronx tough guy, you know, vibe, I think it really worked for what he was supposed to be doing. Even in where he was trying to show genuine emotion, I think he portrayed it very well. He did, and and he brought something else to it, and that's, you know, I guess we'll bring it up now. I mean, you know, it's part of the discussion of the film, but there's two things I noticed whenever I saw him. Right off the bat, when you see him in the first scene, 
uh, where he's in there. He, he's got this, he's got this, uh, I, I'm always looking to the future. I'm not focused on anything immediately in front of me because I've, you know, I'm, I'm always striving to, you know, to be more famous and that sort of thing, which is what the character, the, the character's doing. He's got that vibe going on for him pretty well. And he's got that. I just don't give a shit, you know, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a cocky, you know, like just, you know, uh, you know, throw things out there kind of, you know, comedian type vibe to him and i think that cassavetes has brought that to the role himself i think you know because i i didn't really get that out of the character so much in the in the he was he was a little bit like that in the book but not the way that he portrayed him in the movie and i think what you're saying like you know his, his look and you know some of his mannerisms and the fact that he wanted to improv and just kind of you know fly off his cuff all the time you know i think that he brought that to the character to kind of make guy woodhouse more of like a well, you know, whatever. I don't care about any of this, you know, shit that you care about, Rosemary. It's, you know, like, I'm just here for, you know, to get fame, you know, wealth and fame. That's that's what I'm here for, so. Well, and the way I look at it, too, is you got to remember, this was a time where the woman genuinely stayed, generally, excuse me, stayed home. And, you know, she was a homemaker. That was what their jobs were. And he's providing. And these were times where women didn't really have the liberty to just speak back. They didn't have a foot to kind of say, no, this is how things need to go. We had some growing to do still. So, you know, I, I, I keep trying to remember that when I'm watching this and I'm thinking, why don't you just stab him? <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you get that frying pan and hit him over the head with it? And, that, and that's actually, people have brought that up about Ira Levin's intent in the actual book is that, I mean, you get to the point later on in the movie where like they literally, between him and the you know, cast of vets. I mean, they literally lock Rosemary into her apartment. They won't let her leave. You know, they're like, oh, we'll do everything for you. You, you, you know, get that baby to look after. You just stay where you're supposed to be at in the home. That's kind of a, that, that's meant to be theirs. Like, you know, the way of saying that, you know, whatever you want to call it, the patriarchy or, you know, society at large was keeping women, you know, whether they wanted to be there or not, they were being forced to be in the household and like their struggle to get out of it. You know, so yeah. that, that's that's an underlying, you know, theme that, that was kind of in the book and Polanski pulled out and put in the movie because I got to give him credit. I mean, I'm just going to say it up front, you know, he this is probably the best book to film ad- adaptation that I've ever seen because he, he took like the, the gist of the story, boiled it down into a movie and and didn't lose anything in the process. So, I, you know, another thing to give him credit for with his talent, he literally knows how to, you know, write a screenplay from, you know, I mean, and did one of the best book adaptations that's out there. But I mean, but that, that was a theme that was in the book. It was like, you know, one of those things where it's like, you know, women were struggling. They, they wanted to get out there, you know, be part of the workplace and that sort of thing. And it was like, you know, here society was keeping Rosemary locked up in her apartment. It's like, you can't leave. What are you doing? You know, you're a woman. Stay in the, stay in the apartment. Stay in your lane. Yeah, basically. So the next character we have in the movie is uh, Maurice Evans, the next actor uh, who plays Hutch. Uh, he was in uh, Planet of the Apes. He played Dr. Zaius in that. A pretty big role. Uh, he played in Bewitched, which is funny. <laughs> he played Samantha's father. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he played in, a, for horror film buffs, he played in Terror in the Wax Museum and the Body Stealers. Um, hmm. uh, Ruth Gordon played Minnie Castavet. Uh She... Uh, 
she was in a lot of like different like older films and that sort of thing. She was like an older actress at the time this was made, so a lot of her prime was behind her. A lot of film noir and that sort of thing. You know that that's kind of what was you know, her big thing, but it's funny, she would later go on after this movie to start or to be in the, the, the main role of a, a movie called Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, and I don't know if you ever heard of a movie called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, um, <laughs> it's uh, a movie basically about like an aging woman who's like, you know, in this death struggle with her like daughter and that sort of thing, and like they... I believe, I can't remember what they called, like, this was like a play on that. And it was like one of, the, I think they called it like the Revenge of the Biddies or something like that, like series of films. It was like all these old, old actresses that were like these old crones that were like, you know, going out and like committing murder to people. <laughs> uh, no, what the hell? Yeah, it was like the, the movie that she was in, Whatever ha- whatever Happened to Aunt, Aunt Alice, uh, she's a widow that cons elderly housekeepers uh, out of their money and then kills them. Like, she'll get them out to her place. Hey, take care of me. I'm so feeble. And then, like, you know, kill them and, you know, like, take their money and kill them. So, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. That's just, that was kind of funny when I saw that she was in that movie. I was like, wait, I've heard of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. What the hell is this movie about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell, dude? Um, she was actually hired because she looked like a drawing that Roman Polanski gave his, uh, his uh, hiring department, you know, to for like backup actors, like supporting cast. Literally, she was hired because she looked like what he drew. I don't know if that was- Okay. (laughs) And I'm sorry, but her makeup looked like paint. So she looked like a drawing in the film too. There's a scene later on in the movie where we first see her, the very first scene where we see Roman and Minnie Castavet walk up. And I always, in my mind, I I, I say, okay, here comes the clown and the pimp. Cause I mean, that's literally what it looks like. (laughs) what i was thinking i mean she's got all this bright makeup on it's like terribly done and it's just like okay oh my god it's so horribly done it's but you know what that is how an older person would do their makeup especially in those times because the colors the vibrant colors she had you know yeah it was pretty popular yeah they had those, so, those i don't know it they had those bright 60s clothes on that just like you know, looked at them and you nearly went blind or something it was like kind of crazy but Oh my god! I just their acting got better. Minnie and um, or well, yeah, Minnie and Roman. I'll just say their character names. Their acting got better in the film because that first scene, their acting was fucking terrible. Yeah, it was. I thought it was pretty bad. I do it unless it was meant to be. Where like, oh no, she died, and they're supposed to look suspicious. I could see that totally working because obviously they're behind it in some sort of way, as we find out later on. Well, we don't find out they're exactly behind it, but. It, there had to be something going on. It might have been intentional because, A, Roman Polanski's that way. I mean, like we established with him fighting with, you know, John Cassavetes or whatever. So, uh, but it's one of those things where I just, I think that might have been intentional in the fact that it was like, you know, they're the type of people who they 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 cover up their, you know, like satanic cult, but like not really. Like they don't give a shit if anybody finds out about them because yeah. you know they've got all they've got a lot of wealthy people behind them. On honestly, when you get right They're down so to it, powerful wealthy people. So like you know, it's like oh no, she died. You know, it's like one of those things. It's like because there there's a scene later on when Rosemary's having her dream and you know there's a nun speaking because that's the way she internalizes hearing many through the wall and Minnie's basically talking to Roman and she's like, well, I told you we didn't have a, have to have a drugged out whore to, you know, do this. It could have been anybody, you know? <laughs> so it was like, you know, they really didn't give a shit about her. So it was like one of those things where 
maybe it was good acting. Maybe that was the way they were supposed to have come off. You know, it was just like uncaring. Yeah, you know? that's the way they were supposed to. Like I said, it makes sense. But if they're trying to portray someone who is feeling remorse or anything or feeling bad, they, I was like, ooh, this is very Kmart, <laughs> you know? <laughs> there was a scene, I got to say this, there was a scene that Mia Farrow like comments on and, you know, lauding, you know, Ruth Gordon's acting in the movie. Uh, she she mentions at the end of the movie when Rosemary is like sitting there and, and Rosemary, or like, well, she's not sitting there, but she like is so shocked that she drops the knife that she has in her hand because she's just seen the baby. She's, you know, seen the cult, you know, operate you know fully for the first time and she said oh my god oh my god all that and like she just you know she's just so shocked she drops the knife she has in her hand and it sticks in the floor um which she said she had to do a bunch of times because it had to stick perfectly going back to polanski's like you know it has to be perfect but anyways uh she said that little scene where uh minnie walks over picks the knife up, you know, like jerks it out of the floor and then kind of like, you know, takes her finger and like tries to wipe away the chip in the floor was like totally improvised. And she said that was her favorite scene because she said it perfectly summed up Minnie Castavet, like for her, as far as the character was like her, like, oh shit, you found out about the, the demon baby in our cult, but you fucked my floor up. So let me wipe this off a little bit, you know? It's like... I'm not going to lie. That was actually, that is, that scene sticks out to me so much. So I have to say that's my favorite scene too. Cause I'm like, what are you going to do? What are, you, are are your witchy powers going to fix that? You know, fucking dent in the floor now. Yeah, yeah. I just I loved it. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty good. I was like, yeah, she has a point. That is pretty good. Um, <laughs> um, Sidney Blackmer is the actor who plays Roman Castavet. Again, the pimp in the film. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's funny because he was known for like westerns like way back before this. It's kind of funny that he you know like him playing a character like this. And again, he was the guy that at the end of the movie, it's like I don't know this hell Satan stuff. We might have cursed ourselves, guys. You know, like it's <laughs> it's just kind of funny that Roman Castavet is the one that had to say that. Um, I was listening to another podcast talking about this film, and they one of the girls. It was cat is Catholic. I mean, so am I. And every time her co-host said "Hail Satan," she would freak out. And I'm like, "Calm down. <laughs> Your negative energy is gonna give that word power. Like, calm down. Yeah, what? What? It, it's just the movie. Yeah, she's manifesting some stuff at that point, and she's giving it that much power. <laughs> Tell me about it. To round out the main cast, uh, Ralph Bellamy is the one who plays Doctor Abe Saperstein. Uh, probably one of the biggest assholes in this movie outside of Guy Woodhouse. Fucking hated him. Oh, my God. Uh, it's funny. As far as, like, uh, horror fans goes, this guy was in a ton of shit. He was, like, in the original Wolfman movie, uh, the the old one. He was in The Ghost of Frankenstein. That was, you know, like, the third or fourth, like, sequel to the Frankenstein films. Uh, the funny... And a couple of funny things about him. He was, he was one of the old fucking assholes in uh, Trading Places. I don't know if you remember seeing that movie. I love that movie. There's memes coming out about that movie right now because of the whole Wall Street market shit going on. So, yes. Okay, so moving on from that, though. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I just love the fact that he's the same guy I did not know. And I was like, wait a minute. He is one of those fucking assholes. It's like, do you think we should do this, Mortimer? You know, like, you know, he's what? Oh, my God. And I think they've got a cameo at the end of Coming to America where, uh, um, what, where the main character like hands them like a dollar bill and uh, like they're like we're back in business we finally made it you know because they lost all their fortune in trading places uh, it's it's I don't know it's just kind of funny that he was in that and then he of all movies he was in Oh God with uh, 
uh, oh man, what's his, there was an act, I'm trying to think of the actor's name, George, was it George Burns, I believe was his name, like, uh, let's see what we got here, da, 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 da. yeah, George Burns, uh, did you ever see those films? Mm-mm. It's, uh, I don't think I did, I just, I'm looking at it right now, and I'm like, why does this, it looks familiar to me. Um, it's, it's kind of funny that, yeah, it's just, it's like, George Burns plays basically God in the movie, and it was kind of like you know one of those movies before, um, be- you know before the one that uh, Jim Carrey did, you know, uh, and and that sort of thing. It was oh, I know what you're talking about, um, Evan Almighty and Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty, yeah, it was it was one of those films before that where it was just like you know he's like this old codger that you know, and 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 there's like a sequel he makes called Oh God You Devil, and and like he plays God and the devil in that. So I just thought it was funny that, you know, uh, Bellamy went on to be in like that series of films after he did this of all things. It's just kind of, you know, weird. Yeah. He did a lot of films. I see he was in pretty woman as well. And I was looking to see who he was and I remember the scene pretty well. And I'm like, Holy shit. He was in a lot of films. (laughs) Good actor. He sold me on that, uh, evil Dr. Saperstein very well. But you know, as a woman who has had children and has had to see, you know, an OBGYN while pregnant, there are doctors that I swear to God are just like he was. I remember having at least one and I switched real fast. I was like, no, I'm not sticking with this doctor. Well, and that's the thing that's that I don't know that I thought was interesting about the film. It's like, I don't know which doctor is worse. You've got Saperstein, who's the asshole that's like, don't listen to your family and your friends. You know, I, I'm the doctor. I know what, you know, pregnancies are. They're all different, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, I, what an asshole statement. And then, but I mean, then you've got Dr. Hill later who just basically doesn't believe anything Rosemary says about a pregnancy and just turns her over back to Saperstein. So I, Hill's probably worse. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes and no, because she fucking sounded crazy. And I like if I were going through something like this, I put myself in that situation. OK, look at my daughter, too, because she's like, you know, she could have just said I'm being followed and I'm scared and I want to have this baby privately. Like even my 13 year old is thinking logically. But of course, you can't go that route because of the film. I mean, the the scene was such a good scene where Dr. Hill does this to her that I would not have it removed from the film only because it just, it gets your blood boiling more. And then of course it leads to what happens afterwards, which is, I mean, it, it, it just makes the film so much better the way it was. But yeah, I, I, it's, I don't know. One of my friends that I love dearly came to me and was like, oh my God, okay, so there's this coven of witches <laughs> and there's this baby inside of me. And I don't think it's, it's the devil inside of me. And I'd be like, mm-hmm, okay. Um, I I probably wouldn't contact anybody that they're running from. I would just be like, okay, she's maybe there's some danger, but maybe it's not what she's saying it is. I I understand. I don't know. It was a little crazy how she went off. It was. And, and we'll get into that. It was intentional from Polanski. But the thing is, is that, and I don't know, maybe it's because of the things that they, you know, part of being the healthcare field, they, you know, trained us. It's one of those things where they, you know, it's, it's, it's like he's totally, I mean, he is, you know, trying to look out for her as far as her mental health. He thinks she might be a danger to herself and her baby, and I understand that aspect of it. But she tells him up to that point that she thinks her husband has ill intentions toward her. 
And as healthcare healthcare professionals now, I mean, and that's probably you know that's definitely a sign of the times, the change. It's just it's it definitely it's it's weird looking back, and it's like if you were Doctor Hill now, your training would be okay. If you think the husband might be a danger as well, hey, you know, we definitely need to keep him out of the loop on this. Let's see who else we can get in contact with, you know, that might be an option because we don't want to put you know her in a situation where she's going back to an abusive husband. So I, you know, definitely it gave me. The- the vibe though that Dr. Hill was involved in some sort of way and I know practitioners are friends with practitioners and stuff like that like I get it you know you maybe he didn't know what Dr. Saperstein was about but there he knows that he's an elite doctor so talking ill of somebody like that is like you're talking about my friend and you don't know what really is going on. It could have just been like, hey, you're the proper doctor. I'm doing the right thing, you know? Well, and they do, and going to your point, they've, they've established in the film by that point that Saperstein is actually, you know, he is an expert or at least somebody highly sought after in his field because even Hutch, you know, says that my daughters, you know, had their babies delivered by Saperstein. So it's not like, Saper, I mean, Saperstein is a well-known entity. I mean, other OBGYNs in the city would respect him they would, you know, they, you know, acknowledge him being, you know, top of his field. So there, I mean, the, the movie even establishes he's credible as far as that, you know, that goes. So there, there is some validity to that argument. Um, Definitely. Any other characters we're discussing? Uh, that was the primary ones that I felt like were the the crux of the movie. There's Laura Louise. I didn't look up the actress who played her, but she's just a total bitch in the movie. Like every little snide thing that she can <laughs> say. I mean, and she's, you know. It's funny, in the one little tidbit from the, the books that I wish would have been made into the movie is there's a scene where Laura Louise comes over and she's like, she's she's crocheting. I mean, there's a scene in the movie where she's crocheting with Minnie and Rosemary, but there's another scene in the book where, because they do this several times, and she's crocheting like little booties for, you know, the baby. And Rosemary makes the, you know, observation, uh, hey, those are shaped weird because they're shaped like more of a hoof, you know, like, like they would yeah. cover that. <laughs> And Laura Louise just gives a look like, oh, honey, it's all right. You know, I know what I'm doing. So it's just kind of like a funny little scene that they throw in the book that I wish would have gotten the movie. But, you know, it goes back to, and I guess I should just throw that out there now, Polanski wanted this movie to be to where you doubted Rosemary as a, as, you know, as like her authenticity, like her, I, I guess her, men, you know, where she was at mentally. He he was he I, he never said in the documentary that was on the the D, the Blu-ray he says he was agnostic when he filmed this he doesn't say he's still agnostic he might be atheist he might be fully religious now after what happened to him I don't know you know that's that's on yeah. him but he was agnostic when he made this so he did not want the book to translate as religiously you know into the film as what it, what it did he didn't want it to be so stark like this is definitely the baby you know of the devil and and that sort of thing. So he wanted, you know, he wanted you to doubt Rosemary and uh, which is it, it shows because I started to doubt her a little bit like, OK, I mean, I knew how it ended, but I was still like, Ooh, she's she's talking crazy talk. I mean, I mean, we can get this criticism right now. Like, uh, I think you said your your kids, you know, watch this and they were kind of pissed off about how it was like how it ended, you know, as far as like you don't see the baby, you know, mm-hmm. Um 
and I think that goes back in the Polanski deliberately. It's like, well, the baby could have been fine. It was just Rosemary, you know, mm-hmm. suffering from. It could have been all in her head. Yeah, postpartum postpartum depression is a real thing. You know, she could have been, you know, and it makes women do horrible things, you know, because they're such, you know, in such a state. So she might have been, you know, like that disconnected feeling you have from your child whenever you're going through it and you feel like it's an alien creature, you know, and that sort of thing. I could see, I mean, he worked that into the movie and he doesn't show you the baby because he doesn't want, you know, deliberately say that it's, you know, the spawn of Satan. It could just be a regular baby and she just has all this going on and she is, you know, she is like, that's not my baby. What is this thing? You know, it's like that kind of goes with that. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. And then, like you said, the scenes where she's kind of a crazy person talking to Dr. Hill, that could just all be in her head. And um, and hormones, hormones fuck you up big time. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, While you're pregnant and even and even worse afterwards because your body's trying to get back to what it was before. And, oh, man, is it a roller coaster? It's a helter-skelter. <laughs> The rise and the fall. Um, I just came up with that right now. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. If you enjoyed this episode of Rosemary's Baby Part 1, please join us again for Part 2, coming soon on Death Holler. Death Holler is brought to you by Blue Collar BS, your host, Reverend Dr. Death and La Yarena. Please like, subscribe, follow, and share. We'll catch you next time. Don't forget to bring your death certificate.